Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening on today's podcast. Today, I am joined by Teresa Dykoschak and Hannah Sanderson from the Advocates for Human Rights. Did I, Hannah, did I get your name right? Yes. Okay. Perfect. So as pro bono counsel, Teresa vol- promotes volunteer engagement with the organization and increases their capacity to leverage com- contributions from hundreds of volunteers on an annual basis. Prior to pro bono counsel, Teresa was a staff attorney in the Women's Human Rights Program, specializing in the international and regional legal frameworks on violence against women. Hannah Sanderson is also a staff attorney for the Advocates for Human Rights, and she works with both detained and non-detained individuals seeking asylum and other forms of immigration relief. How are you both doing today? Thank you for coming and visiting me today. Doing well. Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, doing well. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, thank goodness it's Friday. Yes. <laughs> um, just to let everyone know, this this podcast will cover innovative service delivery models that the Advocates for Human Rights have performed in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is the Immigration Advocates Network. We harness the power of technology and collaboration to support immigrants and their allies. My name is Trey Dennis Brown, and I work within the organization as AmeriCorps VISTA to help improve access to justice. So, you know, I always want to keep you as conversation as possible, but let's get right to it. Are you guys ready? Yes. So, as I understand it, the Advocates for Human Rights is the largest provider in the upper Midwest that, that provides free legal services to low-income asylum seekers. Can you tell me more about that? Well, I'd be happy to to jump in and, and share a little bit more about the work that we do with the Advocates for Human Rights and um, the various volunteers that we work with. So at the Advocates for Human Rights, we are a nonprofit, a non-governmental organization. We're based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but we work locally, nationally, and internationally on a variety of human rights issues. And our mission is to implement international human rights standards, to promote civil society, and to reinforce the rule of law. And volunteers are a core part of our mission and volunteers work with us um, throughout the organization in all of the work that we do from helping to greet clients at our front desk when our offices are open um, to traveling to the United Nations with us to do on the ground advocacy um, at the United Nations, at the Human Rights Council and, and various human rights treaty bodies. So we work on a variety of issues. In addition to migrant rights, we also work Um, against the death penalty. We're a member of the World Coalition Against the Death Penalty. We work on women's human rights issues, and we work on um, LGBTI rights and a variety of of issues with partners locally and internationally. Um, And I'll defer to Hannah to talk more about our work with respect to representing individuals seeking asylum and and other forms of immigration relief. Yeah, so um... In the Refugee and Immigrant Program of the Advocates for Human Rights, um, we also implement a pro bono model in our representation of asylum seekers and um, immigrants seeking other forms of relief like trafficking visas, um, unaccompanied children, and immigrants that are being held in ICE detention. Um, So we have uh, three staff attorneys and a director um, who (laughs) <laughs> we're basically representing 800 people, which would not be uh, best practices if we were doing it ourselves. So um, our model is to uh, to work with pro bonos, um, both in Minnesota and around the country, 
to uh, represent asylum seekers um, in court and in the asylum office, to represent children, um, and to represent, as I mentioned, individuals in, in detention um, that are seeking to stay in the United States. So I noticed, Teresa, you did go ahead and start talking about, you know, volunteers in research, education, and advocacy. So I was wondering, you know, how, what strategies do you use in place sourcing and also placing those kind of volunteers for that kind of work? Sure. Um, well, we are, we are very lucky, not just in the Twin Cities, but in the United States, that we have very strong um, pro bono cultures. And we were actually founded by a group of, of attorneys in the Twin Cities back in 1983. And so we've... Um, had a long history of working with volunteers at the Advocates for Human Rights. So almost 40 years, we're celebrating our, our 40th anniversary in just a couple of years here. Um, so we have long-standing relationships with law firms and corporations um, in order to, to share pro bono opportunities and have volunteers from around the cities, around the country and around the world um, to work on the different types of projects that we have, not just our immigration work, but also working with um, our colleagues on anti-trafficking, women's human rights, international justice efforts. Um, and so it, it really is having fantastic relationships and having fantastic partners and volunteers who are interested in joining us in this work. I, I myself was a volunteer for many years with the Advocates for Human Rights before I became a staff member. Um, so it's it's really amazing the number of volunteers who are interested and, and who engage with us on an annual basis. We wouldn't be able to do what we do without their assistance. And so having the relationships with, with law firms and having that formal structure in place is really helpful to be able to get those opportunities out and to be able to recruit efficiently and be able to find amazing volunteers with, with such talent to be able to assist with our work. Anna, do you have anything to add maybe? Sure, I think, um, you know, one of the, the benefits as well to, um, to the model is that we're able to work with many different types of attorneys and attorneys with many different interests. Um, you know, not every attorney is a litigator. Not every attorney is interested in appearing in immigration court um, for a good reason. And I think, you know, it's, it's great that we're able to, um, you know, work with so many different attorneys and offer different pro bono opportunities for folks that are more interested in doing research work, writing up, um, you know, brief samples for us or doing country conditions research or, you know, writing a model comment for uh, a, a proposed rule that came out. Um, so it's it's great because, you know, when, when attorneys come to us and are interested in, in volunteering but aren't exactly sure where to get involved, you know, we have a lot of different options for them, um, timeframes, time, like amount of, uh, you know, work that will go into it, what their, um, you know, their commitment is going to be, but also just different types of legal work, which I think is is not always um, possible at every organization. So I think that's that is another another strength of the work and, and allows us to do more and partner with more people. <laughs> Thank you so much for both of you for giving such nice answers to that. Hannah, um, I did pick up on a couple of things that you mentioned, which sort of leads us into the next question, which is obviously very topically regarding the COVID-19 pandemic. And a large part of the reason why we invited you today was sort of to hear about how 
you know, your delivery models have sort of shifted in the wake of, you know, social distancing and such. How has the advocates model sort of changed during the pandemic? And what other methods have you used to sort of carry on the good work that you're still continuing to do? You know, another piece of it is that we're obviously not the only ones um, having to make this shift. Everybody is doing it. So um, the law firms are doing it. The court is doing it. The jails are doing it. Um, Everybody is trying to figure out, like, how do we continue with our work? Um, especially through this like long haul of of social distancing. Um, So in some ways it's been more difficult. It's been more challenging to meet with people. It's been more challenging to, um, you know, recruit and get to know new volunteers. In other ways, um, I think it's opened a lot of doors for us. We're able to put on trainings um, and, you know, CLEs that reach uh, more people <laughs> because we're not just doing them in person in Minneapolis, right? We're streaming them online. So we're able to invite um, law firms with offices in other parts of the country or, you know, other legal service providers, people just interested in the work. Um, they have access to some of the materials that we're putting out in a different way. Um, I think that it has forced the the court to approach um, the work differently as well. So whereas pre-pandemic appearing in court telephonically or virtually was was very uncommon and um, frowned upon, now that's more or less the norm. So we're able to um, work with attorneys across the country to to represent individuals in our local uh, immigration courts in a way that we weren't able to do that before. And it and it seems that um, some of these changes um, are, are probably here to stay. Yeah, I can definitely, uh, definitely, you know, see where you're coming from with regards to that. Uh, Teresa, do you, what do you think about this question? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, so many of the other types of pro bono opportunities that we have they really lend themselves to remote volunteers. Um, so if someone could be doing research for a UN report, either here in the Twin Cities or from London or from another another location. Um, so that wasn't as hard of a pivot, but as Hannah mentioned, one of the things that, that did change, we're not able to do as many things in person, um, which is a negative thing in terms of, you know, our, our in-person advocacy efforts, but um, also has opened doors, as she indicated, because we're able to participate in virtual sessions um, and people who otherwise might not have had the funds to be able to join in advocacy if it is exclusively in person, it's open doors for them to be able to join in that conversation and to participate. Um, so I think it, it has opened some things up um, as, as much as we love meeting with people in person individually, um, it has, has opened the door for many of our partner organizations and for others who work with us to be able to participate when otherwise they may not have had the resources to do so. Okay, Um, Hannah, another um, unique question for you. I noticed you said earlier that, you know, not every attorney is appearing in immigration court. You know, some people are doing researching work, some people are writing samples. Do you find that 
knowing that there's a less emphasis on in-person work that you might be leaning on those kinds of volunteers more? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think um, one of our goals is to get as many pro bonos involved as possible. So, um, you know, if, if someone's not interested in appearing in court, if there's another way we can get them involved, I, I try to do that, right? I want them to um, have a rewarding experience and it is something that's really research projects and, and brief sample writing can be uh, really important and pivotal for our work. Um, I think one way that we've really seen um, seen that model be be helpful during the pandemic is for representation of of detained immigrants. Um, the timeline for cases in immigration court for people in detention is very expedited, um, and that was particularly true is particularly true um, during the pandemic as numbers of individuals held in detention has gone down in Minnesota. Um, both because of uh, ICE's priorities um, and because the non-detained immigration court was closed until uh, the beginning of July 2021. And so the, all that the court um, was focusing on was detained work. So things were moving really quickly. Um, so that was, you know, for new, for new volunteers, it's a big ask to say like, hey, jump into this really complicated area of law and really complex procedural no, procedural no. posture and then uh, do it within like two months. Um, that, was, that was a lot to ask. And um, I think, you know, what we kind of did instead was myself and, and our other staff attorney often did the in-court appearances um, and it were essentially the attorney of record but we're able to uh, loop in uh, different pro bono teams, sometimes as many as three or four per case um, to work on discrete parts of the case. So we had one pro, pro bono team working on the country conditions research. We had another working on a brief on a immigration issue. If there was a particular um, issue that, that was unique to the case, we needed some research on. Um, we had others that were working to draft the declarations for family members or for the individual that was in detention. Um, we had others working like on, on the bond hearing, for example. Um, and so we were able to kind of make a smorgasbord of sorts um, in our cases and loop in a bunch of different teams, uh, get a bunch of different perspectives and also kind of provide discrete projects for, for teams um, yeah, during, during the pandemic. And, and it made it a lot easier for us going to court. We're not trying to do um, so much within such a limited period of time. We have so much support with the pro bonos um, and it made it so the cases could move more quickly, which is always good for folks in detention who more than anything want to want to get out and continue on with their lives. Yeah, naturally. Thank you, Hannah, for answering that question. I'm going to turn it back over to you, Teresa, because I feel like you haven't talked in a while. So moving on, you know, I noticed that, for example, you do a lot of UN sort of human rights work, you know, how exactly has that maybe shifted during, you know, working with pro bonos with regards to remote work? How, how exactly has that might have changed the process for that? Yeah, in, in terms of the 
preparation of the work, so the research and the drafting of the reports, um, that has always lent itself to be more remote projects. Um, so in terms of, of recruiting and and working on reporting and, and preparing for um, submitting information to the United Nations, that always has, has lent itself more to, to remote volunteers. Um, what did change relates to um, the sessions that the United Nations, that the, the uh, Human Rights Council or the different treaty bodies, that those sessions are now online and virtual. And so that has allowed us, you know, in the past, we may have gone in person to certain sessions if we were partnering with an organization in another country. Um, we might have gone in person in order to meet with delegates, meet with committee members to share information. Uh, but now those sessions are virtual, which is bad because we like to meet with people in person, of course, but it is good because it's allowed us to participate in more sessions because there isn't the um, the need for monetary resources to travel to Geneva, Switzerland. Um, so it allows us to not just the advocates for human rights participate in those types of sessions, but also for our partners um, to also join in those sessions from wherever they are in the world. Um, and another thing I also wanted to note was that um, trainings have also changed. So we have in the past participated in, in various trainings um, especially in Central and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union relating to women's human rights. And unfortunately, those training sessions have now needed to go virtual and that has um, required us to increase our technological skills to be able to continue with those trainings with the partners that we work with overseas, um, to be able to continue to share the information and the knowledge and to help train the next generation of human rights defenders. Um, so that's been one positive thing from the COVID-19 pandemic is the increase in um, our need to, to move to virtual trainings, which could open up um, for people that might not otherwise have had access to the ability to travel to another country for those trainings, to be able to access them online um, from wherever they are. Yeah, thank you for that. That sounds very interesting. Um, Probably on maybe a less grandiose scale, something that always piqued my interest is the idea of your court monitoring work. Um, mm -hmm. First, explain more exactly what the court monitoring work looks like normally and how that might have changed and how that might have come back to normal with the sort of ebb and flow of the pandemic. Sorry, that's a bit of a compound question. So start anywhere you want. <laughs> No worries. So we actually have two different court monitoring projects at the Advocates. Um, one is the Immigration Court Monitoring Project, and that is where individuals um, go to the Immigration Court in Fort Snelling in Minnesota to monitor. Um, in the past, it's just been detained court proceedings, um, but there is interest in expanding to different types of proceedings as well. And that project has been going on for three or four years um, and has had hundreds of volunteers that have watched thousands of of uh, immigration court proceedings. Um, that has changed a little bit because while the immigration court was not having non-detained cases, detained cases were still proceeding, but the immigration court observers were still going to court in person. Um, and so the number of volunteers who wanted to continue to appear in person uh, was lower, um, understandably lower, um, but they did continue on with that work. And now with, um, 
the court continuing on, that that project is still ongoing. With our other court monitoring project, um, it's the WATCH program, and that WATCH stands for Women at the Courthouse. And that has been a, a long project, a project that's been around in the Twin Cities for many, many years. And it became a part of the Advocates for Human Rights just a couple of years ago. And that project monitors cases in Hennepin County, Ramsey County, and Washington County, specifically cases relating to um, domestic violence, assault, trafficking, um, in family courts and criminal courts. And that did change during the pandemic because those courts were, um, they were holding virtual hearings. And so volunteers were able to participate um, when, when they were able to, um, to, to watch those hearings virtually. And so they did not need to go to the courthouses. And so we've had hundreds of volunteers both for both projects. Um, things did change during the pandemic, but we're hoping that as, as we're able to go back to monitoring in person in those courts and as hopefully things get better with COVID-19 that we'll be able to have even more volunteers for both of those projects. Yeah, I think that answer was very enlightening because I was definitely going to have a follow-up question about whether there was reluctance to be in person. So obviously we got there pretty quickly. And just to, you know, sort of say concisely or ask concisely, the courts are not back to normal yet, right? Especially with the Delta variant sort of going around, or is that something that is moving forward with results of vaccinations and such? The immigration courts are not back to normal. We are um, slowly kind of moving in that direction and then kind of taking a step back. Um, we were one of the, we were in the last group of immigration non-detained courts to reopen in the country. So we're just starting to do that um, as of July. Um, and, you know, you can go in person as an attorney, as an observer, um, or you can appear telephonically or through their WebEx system. Um, but, you know, they're not, they haven't just reopened the court to operate exactly as it was operating before. They're focusing on individual hearings. So we don't have um, we haven't had any non-detained master calendar hearings um, at all since the court has uh, been open. Um, and they have rules about how many people can be in the courtroom, um, masking rules, things like that. So still not back to normal. And I think there's a good chance that, um, you know, that, that we'll have to pivot again as we kind of see how the virus progresses. And yeah, I also have another question, which is, do you think, are you hopeful rather that any of these changes that have been in introduced on, you know, sort of the court level with regards to sort of remote, um, what's the word, sort of participation, do you think some of those innovations might be true still going forward post-pandemic, or do you think the courts are going to revert back to normal? or any, you know, sort of the status quo as the means of operation? I hope it's here to stay. I think especially for our region, um, the, Minnesota, the, the court here at Fort Snelling um, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area is the immigration court for Minnesota and for North and South Dakota. So you can imagine people that live in the west, on the western side of the Dakotas have a really long way to travel for their immigration court hearings. Um, and that is really, that's really burdensome 
for those individuals and their families for, you know, it's, it's costly. They have to get a hotel here. They have to take time off work. Um, so it's, it's really tough. And so I'm hoping that um, there are some, there were some other programs before the pandemic for individuals to appear at federal courthouses in, in the Dakotas as well. But um, that program hasn't really restarted at this point, um, but they are able to appear telephonically or by video, which I think is is huge and can be a real benefit, especially for master calendar hearings. Um, and then there's also been a lot more um, acceptance and, and the rules have relaxed quite a bit about um, telephonic and, and remote appearance for experts, which is also huge because it allows us to, especially relying on um, pro bonos and volunteers, um, we're not always able to find a pro bono or volunteer expert in the Twin Cities area. So to be able to um, find uh, a mental health expert or a country conditions expert that, um, you know, we our, our net basically has, has widened quite a bit and we're able to, um, you know, work with folks across the country who can then appear in court telephonically, which was not um, as common previously. So that has helped us a lot. And I hope that that is here to stay. For sure. And, you know, this definitely leads into sort of my final question as we begin to wind down, you know, even uh, regardless of, you know, what the courts are doing moving forward, you know, as a question posed to the both of you, what strategies will you and the advocates for human rights sort of keep going forward? Or what are you looking forward to sort of trying to do in the future, taking the lessons from this pandemic? Teresa? Yeah, I think just continuing with the with the mindset that a lot of our work can be done from other parts of the country, from other parts of the world. Um, and so recognizing that as we're um, identifying our programmatic needs, um, identifying our client needs, to be able to frame projects and opportunities in a way that lend themselves to to remote volunteering um, and just continuing to have that mindset so that we can not just you know increase the number of pro bono volunteers that that we work with um, which we love but also increasing the services that we'll be able to able to provide to our clients and also to our our partners um, so keeping that mindset for the long term i think um is at least my plan. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Hannah, any final words on this question, possibly? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think it's um, it's forced us to think more creatively about partnering with pro bonos, about, um, you know, partnering with different uh, doctors, mental health professionals, expert witnesses. Um, it's just made us, you know, it, it's opened doors and made us think more creatively about how we can problem solve, um, how we can loop people in uh, remotely, um, you know, and, and, and also for our clients, how do we, how do we stay in touch? Um, how do we deliver legal services or, um, you know, figure out where the needs are in greater Minnesota um, if we're not able to go in person? Um, and having to, to think through that has made us realize, you know, we don't, we can have a broader reach. We can, we can reach out, we can 
do outreach to greater Minnesota, to North and South Dakota, without having to make an eight hour trip to do that. Um, we just have to set up, uh, set things up ahead of time and kind of think creatively about it. So I hope we're, um, we're able to do that going forward. And I think that's, that's the plan to keep, um, keep ourselves connected in that way and to keep thinking creatively so that we can reach as many people as possible. Yeah, and reaching as many people as possible is always the goal and sort of the mission statement of all of our organizations, isn't it? Exactly, yep. All right, well, I guess that, that's that's all the questions I have for today. I mean, are there any final parting words? I, I was just going to also emphasize online trainings, and Han and I both touched upon this um, during our conversation, but being more familiar and um, knowledgeable about online systems, whether it's Zoom, whether it's WebEx, and being able to record those trainings uh, when in the past we may have just done in-person trainings and so it was limited to just a particular audience who was able to join us in person. Now we have the mindset that we're you know, recording trainings to be able to share with a broader audience and making sure that there are resources that are available. And I think that really is key just to to make sure that the information is being shared with as many people as possible and, and that knowledge is being shared. Um, hopefully because people are interested in volunteering with us on our asylum work or immigration work or other areas, but just to have that human rights information available to so many people, I think is um, one of the good things that, that we have done and, and made information available to more people across the country and across the world. Han, I think you wanted to say something? Yeah, I just I, really similarly to what uh, Teresa was saying, we're we're thankful for um, platforms and partnerships like Ian who um, allow us to to get that information out there to more people, um, to put it you know online in a way that makes sense and looks pretty, and um, <laughs> you know that, that you've kind of all thought through like what you know what our best practices, what's the best way that we can get this information catalog this information, make sure people have the best resources possible. So we're really thankful for um, the partnership with Ian that was obviously uh, in existence before the pandemic, but I think has just really become um, stronger through through this time. So um, another thing we will keep going forward. <laughs> this is going to probably become a recurring theme in the podcast that I do, but once again, I did not put anyone up to the Ian plug. <laughs> <laughs> All just right. naturally <laughs> yeah all right then thank you Teresa and Hannah for your time and expertise um for those listening who for those who will be listening at home there will be a recorded version of this podcast on our site at immigrationadvocates.org access is free for members and membership is free for nonprofit staff and pro bono attorneys it was so great having you two here today and thank you for taking the time to talk with me I'm I know we started off a little rough, but I really think that we settled into it over time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs>